Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm so excited today to have the opportunity to meet and also interview and introduce to all of our listeners, Jonathan Palmer and Joe Palmer. We are so excited to have you both on the show. Well, we're glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I just kind of want to start out with learning a little bit more about both of you. If you can kind of let me and your audience know more about your professional background before becoming fraud examiners. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Palmer. I'm a social commentator, a fraud investigator. Uh, Initially, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. Crazy enough, within two months of training, I ended up on television working with my childhood hero, but I don't look like The Rock. So unfortunately, uh, that career was short-lived. So I came and, and I, I started working uh, in the family business. And then I got really, really interested in a specific field. When you go to a hospital, what are some of the things that are going through your mind? What are the results going to be? Why, why do I have to be here? But one right. thing that we don't focus enough on and one thing that, you know, it doesn't even cross our mind is, is the individual that is assisting me, are they a, a registered sex offender? Is the medication that I'm receiving from a doctor has it been recalled? Really what, what we spend a lot of our attention on is a little thing called uh, vendor credentialing. And uh, essentially what that is, is whether it's bid rigging, you know, different types of shell companies, companies that aren't necessarily forthcoming with everything, we investigate those companies and we provide security to hospital systems. And that's something we're very, very passionate about. So that's a little bit about me. How about you, Joe? Can you share some of your background with us? Yeah, I'm more of the traditional CPA, uh, accounting major, master's degree in accounting, went to work for one of the big four, Ernst & Young, and uh, initially thought I would be an audit partner at some point or another until I realized that that career path meant sacrificing a lot of things that were more important to me than just work and money. And so uh, I left there, went to be a CFO at various different organizations in the real estate and hospitality industries for many years before we started uh, an outsourced accounting service. Uh, it seemed like we'd go, I'd go from job to job and I uh, realized that there was deficiencies in financial reporting and internal controls. And uh, we had the opportunity back in 2001 to uh, start an outsourcing financial reporting accounting organization. And, and we did that. And, and that's kind of where we got our start, but it wasn't ever meant to be in the fraud space or, or as a fraud investigator. So, Joe, my next question is usually, has it always been your plan to be an investigator? Not necessarily for you, but what about you, Jonathan? (laughs) Never in my wildest dreams that I think that I'll be a fraud investigator. But what, what I love about this field is, it's like I said earlier, there's just some people born curious. And those people born curious are always going to be searching for the answers. And the fact that we have the ability to help people is, uh, I mean, they're, they're very simple concepts. I feel like all children, you know, grow up wanting to help people. So it's just a remix of helping people. And that's how I look at it. And, and I feel lucky to be able to do it with, you know, this, the ACFE and within our field. So no, it was never the plan. Yeah, I, I just love knowing these things about people. Since you've kind of stumbled into this, what has been your focus as fraud examiners? Predominantly, the, uh, and this kind of leads back to 
a situation and the circumstance that we had at one of our largest clients uh, many years ago. It, uh, it is today vendor-related credentialing, identification of shell companies, bid rigging, invoice and billing type of schemes. It's very similar to what banks do when you go to set up a bank account in, in something called Know Your Customer, KYC. Mm-hmm. And it's a term used in the banking industry. They, they really need to know who they're doing business with. And what we had found through a very unfortunate situation that occurred many years ago, unfortunate for our client, very fortunate for us that we were given the opportunity to do this. But we learned that most businesses across industries, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in, they don't have really a great understanding of their vendor population. Do they have criminal backgrounds? Do they have undisclosed relationships with the company and or their employees, if they're in the healthcare space, do they have relationships with the medical service and doctors that uh, are prescribing? A particular example, like a knee replacement joint, is the doctor a silent partner within that organization and therefore recommending all of his patients to have knee replacements? So it's, it's an unusual thing, and I always ask my clients when we get started with them, do you know how many vendors you have in your vendor master file? And, and they look at me and normally with a deer in their headlight kind of look and say, I have no earthly idea. Someone in an operating department may say, hey, I need this vendor set up because we have these goods and services that only that one person can provide. And I need you to set this vendor up quick, fast, and in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And so the accounting or the accounts payable folks will go, up, go ahead and set that vendor up, not ever realizing that the requester was really the person behind that vendor. And fictitious invoices are forthcoming, and they're going to be sent to that person's address or a family member's address or a lockbox, something that they can control. And that happens more frequently than you can possibly imagine. I love this because in our investigations over the last you know nine years of just workman forensics, this has shown up a lot in just even some small businesses. You know, even in a small business, the number of vendors you could have. In fact, this reminds me of something that happened a couple of weeks ago. I just so have, I mean, it is part of my practice. I go in every week and look at the accounting system and different things within that. But I noticed on the bills to be paid, I saw this invoice and I thought, I don't recognize that vendor. Of course, I've paid the bills for the last nine years, so I know who we normally pay. And I went in and I looked and since we're doing a bunch of trademarking, my trademark attorney actually told me, you're gonna get a lot of spam snail mail you're going to get a lot of letters that are from organizations that say that they're going to, you know, register your trademark or all, whatever. Don't do anything with those. The only thing you need to worry about and pay about are the things that we send you. We'll charge you and so forth. Anyway, this bill was almost $1,000. I mean, had I not been checking that, it came through the mail. It looked legitimate. Everybody knows that we've been trademarking some different names and products. And so it looked legitimate and it would have gotten paid, you know, had I not logged in. So, I mean, we're a team of six, you know, it's not like we don't talk to each other every day. The compounding of that in a larger organization like a hospital. Yeah. So think of this, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a university, whether it's a manufacturer, you know, it's basically any organization that has vendors, Leah. Mm -hmm. and, and the real the real problem not only is the fictitious vendor that gets added to a vendor master file and never gets purged off. The real issue is once the fraud gets baked into the actual numbers, the actual oftentimes 
becomes next year's budget. You're so right. it's got some yep. fraud baked in. There's going to be no variance that's going to draw your attention unless you do what you did. Uh, and, and you can do it when you're when you're six. But when you're six thousand, right. you know, at six thousand, you're probably not going to be able to, to do a situation like that. Checks will be cut. Transactions will be posted to the right accounts and and you'll look for variances and you'll see none and you'll anticipate spending $100,000 in this one particular account and you end up spending $99,800 and you're thinking, gosh, that's great, except 40000 of that is fictitious invoices that have been ongoing for the last 10 years, but, but no one really knew it because every year we spend 100000 And so that's really, you know, if, if you ever wanted to find out the panacea for us is to have CFOs, audit committees, uh, internal auditors open up their minds to the possibility that what's hidden in plain sight, which is the easiest place to put things where no one's looking for them, in your vendor master file, your employee right. master file. And so these are areas that we spend all our time in, and we have unique skill sets in looking and identifying fictitious-looking vendors in a simple way. How much have you paid them during this year? And if you've paid them 50000 20000 10,000, 5,000, 150,000, perfectly even numbers. And when I say mm-hmm. even, it's not ending with a, a two, a four, a six, or an eight. I'm right. saying it's a digit, a comma, three zeros, a decimal, and two zeros. Right. When you see something like that, you're thinking to yourself, okay, that's a retainer for an attorney that's doing your patent work. Got it. For an audit firm. Got it. Professional services firm often bill uh, progress billings. But if you're providing goods and services and materials and labor, like in a repair and maintenance or facilities operation, I can guarantee you that is absolutely almost 100% impossible. 99.999% of the time, that is an example of fictitious billing going on. Right. Yep. Absolutely. That's actually one of our first steps in working any embezzlement case when we ask for the data, part of our just standard test is looking for who are all the people that received even dollar payments, just what you described, and then start weeding out, you know, the professional services like you mentioned, and then versus something else, whatever else that is. In the healthcare industry, although vendors are an issue across every industry like we've discussed, but in the healthcare industry, do you think vendors are the most common ways that people steal money, or have you found some other schemes that are up there with it. Yeah, the interesting thing about healthcare and airports, they're open 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. 365 days of the year. So if you think through that process, what we have found in our experience is the repair and maintenance, and I hate to belittle repair and maintenance or facilities is what they're called in, in healthcare systems, but any of the maintenance operations or environmental services or dietary food type of uh, operations, you see a disproportionate amount of activity going on at the oddest hours. And when I hear a client tell me that this is a go-to vendor who has been around for many years and uh, shows up on Christmas Eve at midnight, I'm thinking, no, that's the person I want to look at in depth. Yeah. Like, that's a protected vendor from someone inside an organization. And the, the reality is supervisors aren't always there when... Mm-hmm mysterious, strange occurrence happened at the weirdest hours. And that's what we found in the particular case that put us 
where we are today. Yeah. So I feel like this topic is really setting us up perfectly to talk about some different usage of data in preventing and also detecting this type of stuff. But first, let's just take a second and take a break and we'll be right back. If you're a professional with continuing education requirements, then you've sat through your fair share of required training hours. Let's just say you probably didn't love it. And every year, the requirement hours sneak up on you at the worst time. That's why we've created the Investigation Game, an interactive CPE training experience that qualifies for two hours of ethics continuing education. The Investigation Game, the case of the Man Cave, gives players the opportunity to walk through an investigation and solve a case based on actual events. Think of it as your favorite detective game, but with an opportunity to learn while you play. Players are given case details, decision-making steps, and additional case information to then quantify the embezzlement loss, identify schemes used, and uncover assets purchased with stolen funds. Gameplay wraps up with a presentation providing the case solution and awards the winning teams. This valuable event makes earning continuing education hours fun by combining a real-life case study with an interactive team-building game that we think you're going to love. To learn more or to register, visit investigationgame.com. So welcome back to my interview with Jonathan Palmer and Joe Palmer. Before the break, we were talking about, you were giving examples of different fraud schemes within different organizations, primarily hospitals, but then also vendor records. And I just think this is a perfect opportunity to start talking about data. So if we can talk about what types of data, data techniques, data analysis that you look for in preventing and detecting vendor issues, or even some of the, you know, looking at organizations that are open 24 hours a day and how you detect some of these types of schemes. So if we can just jump in there. Sure. Data is foundation for everything that we do. We, we'll typically walk into a uh, client's organization. The first thing we'll do is we'll ask them to download all their disbursement history for a 24 or 36 month period, 18 month period, whatever it happens to be that they're interested in or they have some concerns about. And uh, we'll analyze that data in a number of different ways, predominantly using Excel, IDEA and Arbutus. If they want us to analyze emails, we'll use MindBridge or BrainSpace. And that's more of a word search discovery tool that we can use. But that's the beginning of almost everything that, that we look at to see what's the current state, where are we, and what do things look like? One question on starting with a disbursements list, what types of processes do you guys use to make sure that the disbursements list is reliable? You know, for something as big as a hospital or a university, we're talking about lots of transactions to actually make sure that that disbursements list, because that's been through the hands of someone and making sure that that data is reliable for your test. That's an excellent question, by the way. It's always good to talk to another fraud examiner because <laughs> they actually think this way. You and, know? and she's not yeah. your average fraud examiner. Exactly. So, so yeah. it, it's, this is, it's an excellent question. You know, when we show up in a place, we ask to interview the IT staff. Normally we meet with the CFO. We do not meet with accounting people. We mm -hmm. do not accounting or purchasing or supply chain people for any data or information, nor do we ask HR or payroll for any payroll related information. Uh, we always go to IT. And the reason that we go to IT is they're so effective at producing information from within an organization's uh, data. They don't ask many questions. They want the format. 
They just want to deliver a product for you. So you get the product effectively unscrubbed. Now, you know, you can make an argument. You can try, if you want, to reconcile total disbursements to a number of different financial reports or what have you, but you'll be chasing around different situations and not able necessarily to reconcile things. So typically, when we're called in, we're either called in because there's suspicion of a problem or there's just a desire to what we call the swan principle, and that's just sleep well at night. And mm -hmm. so really what they want, the CFO or the audit committee, the president of the organization, what they want to know is, is there anything unusual within our data? And like I said, we'll normally go over and we'll ask IT to download in a pre-established format of information that we feel as necessary to begin our analysis. That's good. Because that's, if you guys ever have a chance to play the investigation game, there are, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but there are definitely traps set up in the game to look at, are you using the, the most reliable source of information? So that's why I have to ask that question. Our, our whole staff should play that game to see if we yeah. miss a trap, you know? Because <laughs> right. it's experience. It's definitely, why not learn through, you know, something that's kind of sort of, pre-established and fixed so that, you know, when you're in front of a client, you don't make the same mistake. Right. Well, and it's, I mean, I'm super biased and I'm just always super pumped about this game, but the fact that you have to work this case in 65 minutes really helps emulate that stress in the moment of absorbing what a client's telling you and creating a plan in the moment, you know, just to kind of add that added pressure so that you're training yourself to think and to actually use logic in the moment and to not hopefully make some of those mistakes of, oh yeah, we can just rely on this. And then you find out it's messed up. Another source of data, you know, you talked about, you start with the disbursements and we talked about looking for even dollar payments. What are some of the ways that whenever you're looking at these even dollar payments and the disbursements, and so you've identified some potential vendors, what are the types of tools that you guys use to kind of do some of that research on those vendors? Once we've identified the vendors, we, we oftentimes will either use TLO or Clear, a Thomson Reuters product, to be able to find out some of the relationships, some of the criminal backgrounds. We also, because healthcare systems are so dependent on Medicare and Medicaid, we also have to do a number of different sanctions checks, SAM.gov. We'll go through, streamline, verify, SAM.gov, OIG. We'll take a look at different websites to ensure ourselves that the vendors and their officers do not have any sanctions. Because if you knowingly do business with any organization that's on a sanctions list, the government can withhold Medicare and Medicaid funding from the company. It's important for us, and on Monday, as I was saying, that uh, we're going out to do a project. We're starting a project with an organization that was not sanctioned checking their vendors. And, and their first thought is, well, we'll just send all the companies. Leah, the companies are not who do bad things. It's fine to check to make sure that the entity is not itself on a sanctions list. But more importantly, the tough part is to check the officers. And that's where you need to have a TLO or a clear. You, know, you can go to the vendor's website. You can see their officer, secretary of state. You can identify where their officers are and then try to look through and make sure that those individuals may not uh, have any kind of criminal records or, or issues associated with them. So, Leah, I think that you would really enjoy the story. What happened is we had a vendor. His name was Mr. Icy. And what he does is he delivers ice cream to a children's hospital. So what happens when we paid attention to the, the key leader, this individual who is the owner of the company driving the trucks every single day, turns out he had multiple DUIs. So imagine that. 
this ice cream truck driver, maybe he's having a couple day drinks while he's delivering this ice cream to children. And this is why it's so important to uh, pay attention and focus on the background of the leadership. And I think another kind of question related to that that I would have is how much time are we talking about once somebody has done this work, maybe to get caught up to, to today and then put in procedures going forward to prevent it? How much work is that really to prevent some of these risks that could be detrimental to the company? That's an excellent question. Fortunately, because we've been doing this since around 2008, we've kind of stumbled along and, and misstepped and figured things out and got a little bit better at it. We use various software tools to compare database informations to identify some of the, almost like a risk arraying or a stress testing of your vendor population. Because you have to start somewhere, Leah, just the rounded payments, but you want to see if there's Anything that looks nefarious related to particular vendors and or employees, you know, you could have a situation as simple as a, as an export of your vendor master file. And, and do you happen to have the same vendor listed multiple times? Do you happen to have the same vendor with different addresses or the same vendor with different FEIN numbers or the same FEIN number with different vendors? And so it, it's a, a number of different tools that we have developed and learned to be able to fast track that a little bit to tell you whether you really do have a problem. The biggest challenge we face in most organizations is, I don't have this problem, Leah, so why are you bothering me with this? I'm way busy to worry about this situation, which might be a natural transition now to talk about the story that got us where we are, if yes. you want. So back in 2007, there was an anonymous letter with the ACFEs always indicated that that's the highest rate. You could be really great at what you do, Leah, and I'm sure you guys are, but sometimes it's just better to be you know, lucky than to be good. And <laughs> an anonymous letter came in to this very large organization in South Florida where the person who wrote the letter was basically indicating that there was uh, favoritism being showed in the letting of contracts and work in uh, a repair maintenance department. And so fortunately for us, the CFO of the organization and I had worked together at Ernst & Young many years ago, and he knew the inquisitive nature and the doggedness that we have, that we won't let something go until we're completely satisfied that there was nothing there. And mm -hmm. so he uh, sent over the information, indicated what department it was, and then worked with us a little bit and, and identified some of the line items of data within the income statement that might indicate some nefarious activity. And purely by the grace of God, because we're not that good or that smart, but it was just an enlightened moment that we said, you know something, why don't you download all of the disbursement activity in these line items? And they were very, very heavy line items of data. And so when IT heard the request, uh, they said, well, you know, that's going to be an export file of 100,000 rows of data. And I said, I don't care how much it is. You know, we got a job to do and we're going to do it to the best of our ability. And so they downloaded the data and we started to sort it and analyze it. And quickly we realized, wait a second here. There are no disbursements individually that exceed the bid threshold. That's kind mm -hmm. of a little bit odd. Just yep. back to my days at Ernst & Young, from a, a random sampling perspective, what's the odds that within... 100,000 rows of data, four transactions exceed the bid threshold. It just right. doesn't make any sense. And this organization is a multi-billion dollar organization with expenditures exceeding a billion dollars. So we're thinking there's no way this could possibly be the case. So we started sorting and analyzing the data. And soon we started seeing certain vendors that had multiple invoicing occurring during one given 
period of a month at a time. As many as 58 invoices occurring within one month for one particular vendor. And we're saying, well, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, why don't you send me a statement once a week of all the work you've done or, or send us a monthly invoice of all the, the monies that are owed to the organization. But 58 different invoices with 58 different disbursements, that doesn't make any sense. And we started seeing that 58 in one case, 37, 17. We're thinking that just looks a little bit strange to us. So we started looking at the invoice data. We pulled some of the invoices and we started seeing descriptions on the invoices that were very, very thin per quote, as agreed, per conversation, without really any description of the work that was done. And mm -hmm. you get Leah, the amounts were rounded amounts, 1,500, 1,000, 1,200. And we're still thinking, okay, this is strange, but why 58 invoices? Well, we started putting these invoices together and we looked at the areas that they were serving within this one hospital, within a large hospital chain. And we noticed in one particular floor, they had broken up the work room by room. So if they were going to paint a room or they were going to put a new AC, an AC unit or air handler in, they were doing it on a room by room basis and invoicing room by room. Hmm. What did that result in? No bids because the individual invoice was below the bid threshold. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Yeah. So we start looking at this. We start compiling all these invoices, very thin descriptions, what we call split billing. It's a kind of a term maybe that we've coined ourselves, which is basically taking a purchase order and splitting it up into individual purchase orders to cover individual services within rooms when it's a whole entire floor, Leah. What are right. you talking about? This is a $20,000 project that needs three bids. Okay. Right. So to compound the situation, we were very, very fortunate. Again, it's just a, a blessing that we had. The individual who retired from the Secret Service here in South Florida, he just retired and he came to work in this particular organization as the director of security. Well, given his investigative background, the CFO called me and said, could you work with this individual, myself, the Secret Service guy, and look at this case and put things together? He was a godsend to us because he began diagramming how does this particular vendor have any relationship with any? Just He was just inquisitive. Do mm -hmm. vendors have any relationship? Do they have common ownership? Are they run by the same group of people? Because these are questions that exist all the time in your vendor master file. How do you know that every single vendor in your vendor master file is an independent organization? Or are they all controlled by one group? Well, he calls me into his office, and this was like, you know, it's an old school guy. So his pencil diagram. And he showed me what he had put together from Secretary of State, that there were seven organizations that were all within the vendor master file of this particular organization that we were working for, and they were all controlled by one CPA. And I said, okay, now we've got problems because CPAs know how to hide things. Mm -hmm. They bill things, they know how to code things, they know how to do things such that they're more, more difficult to detect. We go through and we start seeing this link analysis and we figure out all of these different vendors are all related and controlled by what this one group of companies. Once we did that, he wanted to see more invoices. And I explained to him, in a healthcare system, you can have an accident on one of the large I-4 corridors, let's call it, right? And your freshly painted emergency room could have a 50-car pileup and have blood and, and carts scraping the walls. And that which was painted a few months ago 
probably is already looking like it's pretty old because, you know, hospitals tend to have those kind of situations, high volume, unexpected, especially in emergency rooms. Sure. And I said, listen, let's not look at the invoices that are new because his thought process, which was a good one, let's go take some pictures of some of this work to see if the work was even done. I thought that's ingenious. Yeah, that's good. So we worked together. I said, let's look at some of the freshest recently approved invoices within the last 30 days, last 10 days, and have your security guys at night go to these locations. They're part of security. There's not even a spectrum of question or concern why the security officers are walking the premises of the hospital system, right? Pretty fair? Mm -hmm. They start taking pictures. Well, we match up the pictures with the invoices, and we find out that they had the invoice said routing of bathroom room 302. The only problem is this one particular hospital is 50 years old. It doesn't have a bathroom in that particular room. Not every room has bathrooms 50 years ago. Yep. And we said, well, wait a second. We look at another invoice that has wainscoting. Another one had tile work in a window. None of the work was done. We physically had pictures that showed this work was not done. He had contacts in the U.S. Attorney's Office and the U.S. attorney said to us, find me $250,000 worth of invoices that you have pictures for that have no work done in those particular areas, and we will take this case. We found $272,000 and stopped at that point. Nice. U.S. attorney's office, they looked at the case. They knew the individual because he ran the Secret Service. He was a credible person. It wasn't mm -hmm. just Palmer walking up and saying, take this case. And before we know it, the IRS is involved. And these are not IRS agents that have really sharp pencils, Leah. These right. are IRS agents that carry guns. And so he yep. came out and interviewed us and interviewed the director of security, understood the circumstances. And lo and behold, behind them, the FBI showed up. And so the FBI is now involved. The IRS is now involved. We're producing reams upon reams of invoices and documents. They asked us for bids. They asked us for proposals. They asked us for all the documentation. Then back in 2008, 2010, they all of a sudden swarm this one hospital's facilities department on Ash Wednesday and take the whole department down. And they interview every single person, an FBI agent, an IRS agent, and one of the in-house employees. They start asking all sorts of questions. Pieces start coming together. And finally, the smoking gun was where the FBI guys noticed there was a bid consistently not being accepted by an organization in West Palm Beach. Now, we're down in South Florida. It'd be mm -hmm. a little bit strange in South Florida to have to go all the way 60, 70 miles away to find a flooring vendor. South Florida oh, sure. has a plethora of flooring vendors. You don't need to go to West Palm to find a flooring vendor. Well. They show up at the vendor's house, knock on the door. The vendor's girlfriend answers the door, and the FBI agents introduce themselves and start asking questions, at which time the girlfriend says, I don't know why you're here, but I have nothing to do with flooring. And so they end up, she calls her boyfriend. The boyfriend turns out to be an individual who knew someone here within this healthcare system, and he was creating fictitious invoices and bids using his fishing buddy's logo from his website. So he, mm -hmm. the particular company tied to his address never won any of the bids. 
because there was no one really submitting that bid, and it was always the high bidder. And so once the boyfriend figured out that the FBI was asking questions and they were on to him, the FBI pushed him, got him to turn, and he disclosed the entire situation. And it turned out to be a multi-million dollar, decade-long billing and bid rigging scheme that was perpetuated in this healthcare system where everything was within budget. It was all self-contained within six internal employees, 12 external vendors, and they were pulling this off and not internal audit, monthly operational review meetings with the financial executives of this healthcare system or their outside public accounting firm were able to detect it. It was just by the grace of God that we asked one simple question. Yeah. Download the data. Show me all of the transactional stuff. The devil's always in the details, Leah. And so once we got to that, we ended up going to court. Twelve people ended up going to prison. Twenty-five vendors were asked not to come back, and six internal employees were fired. The CFO, after that had occurred, came back to me and said, this is a never-again-happening event. We have to figure out how to credential our vendors to know who they are and know that there's no nefarious relationships with each other or with any of the employees. And that launched us on a career path that took us in a completely different trajectory that is what we're doing today and trying to share effectively the message of know who you're doing business with. If you don't, it's something that might and will and often does come back and bite you. This is what ended up happening, and this is what we try to get out to people. You think you don't have a problem. Let us stress test your vendor population. Let us confirm that you don't have a problem. And once you've determined you don't, great. You've got good controls in place. No harm, no foul. Everything is good to go. If you do, then begins the laborious effort of trying to identify it, the puzzle-building process. And it does take some time. But if you nip it in the bud before the fraud gets out into the news, the reputational impact that could damage an organization is enormous. If you think the cost of fraud prevention and detection is big, hospitals and airports, institutions of higher learning always are renovating things to stay up with the competition. Wow. You said six employees and 12 external vendors or you know people outside the organization for 10 years. That is a lot of people to collude effectively for a very long period of time. You know, you would concentrate those in certain of the in-house employees. There was a father-in-law that had brought in his son-in-law to continue to perpetuate the fraud. It's a generational type fraud. So some of the six were more guilty, and some of them were kind of caught up, the baby with the bathwater, if you will. If Mm -hmm. you're the director and you weren't really asking the right questions, were you involved? I don't really know, but I can assure you one thing. You should have been kind of more attuned to what was going on. But keep in mind, Leah, these were the words of these are trusted vendors. They have been with us a long time. Trusted vendors are like trusted employees who never take vacations. Those are the ones I want to talk to. Those are the protected vendors. So some of the vendors were worse than the others, but they were all caught up in the same net of doing this thing. Because once one caught wind of the other, you know, this is crazy stuff. Brush buys where vendors were leaving the parking garage and employees were arriving and they were handing out bricks of cash. Oh my goodness. 
paper bags to employees from the vendors who are so appreciative. In all the organizations we've looked at, there are the same exact patterns. The difference is some management will go further and try to identify whether there's a problem. Some management says, look, I'd rather just not know about it and bury my head until it comes out in the paper. And at that point, you got a problem. Wow, that's a wonderful story. I love that it's a story that just supports why data is so important and how data analysis can allow us to efficiently and effectively look at the whole picture instead of on a sampling basis. Sampling has its place for sure, but just from a fraud examiner standpoint, how powerful data is and that it's not something to be overwhelmed about, but it's just a super powerful tool in detecting and then, you know, even on an ongoing basis and then coupling that with those recommendations you gave. It's, yep. it's awesome. Yep. Okay. So coming from public accounting, that was the, that was the, 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 the standard test we always did. Disbursements, 25 disbursements. If all the control points weren't there, you know, you expand your sample to 60. And then after that, you either have a material weakness in internal controls, because most of the times the CPA firms don't have the time or the budget or the client doesn't have the, app, the appetite to continue the testing at all. They explain it away. I've been involved in many audits in the past where everything was explained away, sometimes to our detriment. So what we do is we believe in judgmental sampling, not statistical sampling, but we'll go in there and we'll look at data and we'll look at situations like sequential invoicing that happens to be rounded and it's on the same day or billing that occurs on a weekend. So we'll go in there and we'll take all of your data and we'll sit there and analyze it through IDEA and make sure that we can put together all the appropriate pieces that would look nefarious to us and look at those invoices first. Because if you do random sampling, let's say you trip over one nefarious transaction, aren't you going to expand your test anyways, Leah, to more of those transactions? So why not start with the end in mind? Let's find out what looks messed up, and then let's analyze what looks messed up. If the messed up stuff can be explained to our satisfaction, then probably everything's okay. If it can't be, that's the beginning of the end. Yeah, completely agree. I thoroughly have enjoyed this conversation. And I always love talking to other individuals that this is what you do day in, day out. That this isn't, I mean, I love talking to fraud examiners of all kind, don't get me wrong. But when you do this day in, day out, so that you can see similarities and build efficiencies to solve problems for clients, it's just one of my favorite things. One last quick story. Three weeks ago, we get a call from a, from a client and they said, you know, we got a concern about this one particular IT vendor. It supported the entire infrastructure, outsourced IT vendor for the last 10 years. They ran an Experian report on them, and it showed a very low threshold for financial stability. And so they had some concern. I said, well, have you sanctioned checked them? No. Have you done any background checking? No. I said, all you're doing is Experian. You're running a DNB or Experian report or getting a credit application. That's all you've done? Yeah, that's all we've done. Okay, give me the vendor, their FBIN, and all their officers' name. Turned out that the leader of that organization had 18 criminal records, including second-degree murder and kidnapping. Within a week, that organization fired that IT vendor. And so yeah. for 10 years, a guy who's already gone to prison is within the four walls of your organization. Just know who you're doing business with. That's the panacea. If everyone knew who they're doing business with, that would be a, a perfect world. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I've just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So glad that we got to meet in this way and hopefully someday we can meet in person and perhaps overplay in the game. But what is the best way for listeners to connect with you both? 
So the first way is, uh, and the, mo the easiest is uh, info at Palmar, P-A-L-M-A-R, forensics.com. You could also reach us on LinkedIn. We have a YouTube. We have an Instagram, fraud.facts. But also, if you're already a listener of this program, we're going to be all over Workman Forensics LinkedIn as well. So we'll be in the comments section. So if there is any way you want to interact with us, we're definitely available that way. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for spending time with us. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Leah. We very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Take care. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about any of the topics that we talk about on the podcast, please visit workmanforensics.com. And to register for our Be a Data Sleuth seminars, visit beadatasleuth.com. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com. Thanks for listening.